Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Well, Holy Spirit, bless our reading of these words and our ongoing attention to them. We thank you for the gift that scripture is, and we pray that we would leave here tonight knowing that you indeed make it living and active in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, as we come to Genesis 16, we read a story of God's persistent action amid the bald ugliness of human sinfulness. It's a story in which the good guys and the bad guys are all mixed up together, where God is on the side of people who are unambiguously wrong, while at the same time not abandoning the people who are oppressed. It's also a story in which God is remarkably adaptable, remarkably willing to work with and for the bastard children that are produced from out of the schemes of egregiously wayward and even seemingly faithless people. In verse 2, at the beginning of verse 2, we read Sarai saying, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. There's a clear note of bitterness in Sarai's words. Her reasoning proceeds from cumulative disappointment, from many years of seeing her deepest longings going unsatisfied. Sarai is disappointed by the difference between what she thought her life would be and what it actually is. What she must have thought would happen for her in her marriage, in her adult life, 
didn't happen. Instead, something she probably never really considered as a possibility for herself, childlessness, turned out to be her inescapable reality. From Sarai's vantage point, God has deprived her of the thing that she most wanted. And so simply put, she develops a workaround to try to get what she wants without God. As we continue reading in verse 2, we read her saying to her, hus- to her husband, Abram, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. That word obtain there, uh, if we were to try to translate it more like uh, literally, it would say something like that I may be built by her, or that I may be built up by her or established by her. Verse 2 ends with the words, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The basis, let's, let's think here for a second about what it is that Abram is listening to here. The basis of Sarai's plan is, is the alleged untrustworthiness of God. I mean, the very first thing out of her mouth is to say, God is not trustworthy, effectively. I mean, to paraphrase, not, not too much here. God is not trustworthy, right? And so that's, that's what Abram is listening to. He's astonishingly compliant and even passive throughout this story. His silence at this moment sounds to me just like the silence of Adam in the early chapters of Genesis when Eve is being tempted. And the description of his compliance with Sarai's plan follows exactly God's description of Adam's failure in Genesis chapter 3. There we heard God say to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree, etc. So that's not an accident, I would say. I think that the writer of Genesis is not at all trying to gloss over what are real failures on Abram's part in this moment. Sarai's plan is to utilize the resources that are available to her, in this case, an enslaved woman named Hagar. She wants to utilize that resource in order that she might obtain something for herself, in order for her own hopes and endeavors to be established, to be built up. But when Sarai has successfully carried out her plan, she still has not escaped the horrible limitations of her barrenness. Instead, the success of Sarai's plan, the conception of Abram's child in Hagar's womb, only confronts Sarai even more deeply with her own powerlessness. This child that has been conceived is not Sarai's, but Hagar's, and therefore it's not going to build her up. It's not going to establish her. Having accomplished the very thing she set out to do, the opposite of what she most deeply wanted has actually ended up coming true. Hagar, by her pregnancy, is in fact built up, lifted above her mistress, and in Hagar's contemptuous gaze, Sarai is brought low. Uh, When it says that she looks on her with contempt, what that means is that she looks down upon her that she was insignificant in her sight. Little wonder, then, that Sarai, revolting against this still deeper experience of powerlessness, lashes out at anyone and everyone who's at hand. First of all, at her husband, at Abram, who, with with an almost disturbing degree of detachment from the whole situation, replies to Sarai's attack, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do with her as you please. Thereupon, Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar, who then flees. Moving on here to the beginning of of verse 7. The Lord, the angel of the Lord finds Hagar. I won't say a ton about that, just except that it suggests that God is, is searching her out. 
Uh, it may, in fact, be there's some other things in the passage that suggest that Hagar may already, at the time that she was found, have been praying. But regardless of that, what's clear is that the initiative lies with God, especially, that he's seeking her out in the midst of her pain. Moving on in verse 7, where he finds her is by a spring of water in the wilderness. It's by a spring of water in the wilderness. And in a real broad way, I just want to note here that that's a, a really richly elusive location within the canon of Scripture, for her to be by some water in the wilderness. There's lots of directions, lots of connections to be drawn to other parts of the Bible there. But in short, I'll just say that the wilderness in Scripture is a place of deliverance. It's not always a place that's desired, but it is a place of deliverance. It's a place of radical dependence on the Lord. It's a place of the Lord's tender attentiveness to the most basic and the most intimate of human needs. And it's a place where God's provision for those, where God provides concretely for those needs in gifts like water and food and sustenance and even the material that's needed for sacrifices. So at the beginning of verse 8, God initiates a conversation with Hagar. He's found her. She's by this spring of water in the wilderness. And through the angel of the Lord, God begins speaking to her. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Just real quick here, just open this up to discussion. Why does God take the trouble to ask a question like that to Hagar? Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I mean, she doesn't answer where she's going. That's right. Yeah, she doesn't. That's very observant. Yeah. Also, she answers uh, basically with what he already knew because he says, servant of Sarai, and she says, I'm coming from Sarai. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Does God not know? Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Okay, yeah, do you want to say anything more about that, Akeen? to consider her own situation? Because God knows where she is and what she's been through. Mm-hmm. For her to acknowledge that could be important. For her to acknowledge it could be, yeah, yeah. So maybe to um, see if she, or not see if, but like to get her to consider what like her future plans are, if she has any. I think it's interesting that, yeah, a couple of y'all have, have touched on the future thing. Go ahead, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so maybe one thing we could say is that, like, she already is known, but maybe the, with this question, the Lord is inviting her into the knowledge of the ways that she's known. 
this is the beginning of a conversation that makes it possible for her to realize how deeply she is seen. Um, yeah, is that tracking along with what you're thinking there, Kalila? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think maybe it's to see if she'll be honest about it, too. Okay. Uh, I think the, the woman at the well thing is a good thing. Just, like, go and call your husband. Mm -hmm. Like, she could have said, okay, let me go do that. Mm -hmm. But she was honest to be like, I don't have a husband. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he knows where she's at, and he's with her. Yeah. He's situation. Yeah. Yeah, he's already, in the way he names her, he's already signaling on some level that he knows the answer to some of the question that he's asking, right? He knows some of where she has been. Um, he's, he's already sort of touching on the place of pain, certainly. So another thing this evokes for me is... Um, you know, God frequently comes and says something to people who are on the run in Scripture. And uh, maybe the, one of the most similar examples I can think of is when the prophet Elijah is running from people that want to kill him. Um, God comes to him, and it's actually a really beautiful moment. It says that, like, uh, I think it says the angel of the Lord, like, touches him on the shoulder and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And then a bunch more stuff happens. He's, he says to him, um, you need to eat because the journey is too, too much for you. So he sustains him. He goes along the way a little bit further. And then again, toward the end of that passage, he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? You know. Um, at any rate, God asks her about her past and her future. And very broadly speaking, I think in addition to what we've said, this is a, this is a really robust invitation uh, that is entailed in this question. It suggests a willingness on the part of God to listen to whatever Hagar may have to say in response. And just because we don't get here a record, like a really, really long record of every single thing that she said, I mean, her response here is very concise. There's something about the open-endedness of this that I think suggests God's willingness to really be there in a sustained way, listening to Hagar. In the latter part of verse 8, Hagar replies, I am fleeing from my mistress, mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord had asked her about her past and her future. And Hagar's answer, interestingly, describes what she's doing at present. Implicitly, it answers the portion of God's question about the past. You know, I mean, she is on some level answering that question, where she came from. But she leaves the unanswered, she leaves unanswered the question about her future. She does not have a destination in mind, and even less does she have a plan. In verse 9, we read, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. So, straightforwardly, Hagar's circumstances do not change. Indeed, God instructs her to return into those circumstances, uh, abusive as they are. Instead of making things immediately better for her, the Lord gives Hagar a promise. It's a promise that bears striking resemblance to the promise that the Lord has been making to Abram in the chapters that we've already read. In verse 10, we read, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. So God doesn't, at the moment, uh, completely deliver her from the uh, far less than ideal circumstances that she finds herself in. What he does do is give her a promise, and it's a promise that sounds almost identical, almost like a Cliff Notes version of the promise that he's been giving to Abram. Moving on to verse 11, 
he tells her that she's pregnant, and he says, you shall call your son's name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I think that Ishmael means, um, I'm sure I could probably find this in the footnote somewhere, but I'm pretty sure if I, if I remember correctly, Ishmael means the Lord hears, something along those lines. So his, his name, his very person, is going to be a reminder, a sign or a memorial to God's attentiveness, to Hagar's suffering. And in that, God is already beginning to answer the question about her future, that her future is going to be determined by the fact that the Lord hears her affliction. The fact that the Lord has listened to Hagar's affliction means that what Hagar has been doing out there in the wilderness by that spring of water is praying. God's had something to listen to, to the sound of her affliction, okay? Moving on to verse 12. Uh, This is one of my favorite verses. Uh, If I could have found a way to make the whole talk about this, I would have, but verse 12 describes who Ishmael will be. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, depending upon your translation, it might say uh, a wild ass of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Um, I think I just like that because I kind of identify with it in some ways. Uh, But more importantly, I I just want to say that I think that this description of Ishmael it needs to be read not just as a prediction about what kind of person he is going to be, but it needs to be read as a part of the promise. Like God is still making a promise here and not just sort of, you know, um, ha- happens to be describing what this guy is going to be like. This is still part of the promise. I think the subtext here is that Ishmael is going to come by all of these traits honestly, that the apple is not going to fall far from the tree. In other words, I think Ishmael is going to epitomize and fulfill traits that are already implicit in his mother, Hagar. I think that there's a cussedness that we, that's kind of implied in her uh, that is a, a strength of hers, actually. I think that her own fierceness is going to be turned loose and set free in her son. Another way of putting this is to say that this description of Ishmael is the counterpoint to return to your mistress Submit to your mistress is not something we really want to read in this story, for good reason. But that's not the end of the story. Like, the question of whether or not God is bringing about deliverance and justice is not going to be answered only within the scope of Hagar's immediate circumstances. But it's going to be answered by answering the question, where are you going? What's going to come after you, Hagar? So, and again, at this point, I just want to remind you of something we noted last week, that, we, that with this story, that part of what I think God is doing is trying to break our faith out of the narrow confines of our own lifetime and help us to hear his promises as something that hopefully we do get to enjoy a sliver of them or some portion of them or maybe even a big windfall of the fulfillment of those promises in our own lifetime. And yet the question of whether or not God is acting justly is always going to take longer to answer than maybe just one person's lifetime. At this point, we've pretty much covered the passage, and, and now I want to sort of ask some what might be uncomfortable questions in some ways. Very broadly, the, the question I want to ask is, which of these two women is closer to God? Which of these two women is closer to God, and why? Both Sarai and Hagar, uh, they, have both, they are both very clearly caught up into God's promise to Abram and the amazing things that God is ultimately going to do for the entire world through that promise. And yet both Sarah and Sarai and Hagar have been saddled with inescapable forms of weakness, with their own inescapable forms of weakness. Each of them 
has some kind of powerlessness that they are called to endure. As for Hagar, she is enslaved. To use the grammar of the scripture itself, Hagar lives her life, quote, under Sarai's power. As for Sarai, her powerlessness consists in the fact that she's barren. She is deprived of what is arguably the quintessential power of womanhood, the capacity to conceive and bear children. Note that I didn't say it's the only power of womanhood, but it's arguably the quintessential power of womanhood. And certainly for a woman in her circumstance would have been inextricably tied up with her sense of what it meant to be a woman and a wife. To Sarai, her weakness and her powerlessness, those seem like things that need to be revolted against and overcome. She wants to revolt against and overcome her weakness, to find a a way to work around it. And in a sense, from here on, I don't want to be too hard on Sarai, for reasons I'm going to say in a little while, but she's not like overflowing with things to imitate. You know, she has a place in the promise, but it's almost in spite of herself. In a way, she's one of the last people in the story to kind of give in or buy in or believe what it is that God is up to. By comparison to Hagar, I think it would be fair to say, and certainly by comparison to Abram, it would be fair to say that Sarai is embittered and hardened toward the Lord. Rather than cry out to God, Sarai takes God's unresponsiveness to be a foregone conclusion. Again, remember, she begins from the assumption that God has said no to her, that he's working against her, that he's the gatekeeper that's keeping the door shut. So rather than cry out to God, she takes God's unresponsiveness as a foregone conclusion. Perhaps Sarai used to pray to God, but she does not do so now at this point in her story. Now, at this point, 10 years into her sojourn with Abram, Sarai does the opposite of praying. She schemes. She takes matters into her own hands. Sarai has a very real affliction that she could articulate to the Lord. As I'm going to mention later on, there are other barren women in Scripture who don't give up on their barrenness, and they, they, they keep on bringing that affliction to the Lord. But she has closed down and calcified around her pain and around her disappointment, her scheming and exertion, her attempts to get by force to take what actually can only be given to her. All of this drives her further afield from the God to whom Hagar cries, the God who sees and the God who hears. Sarai's attempt to get what she thinks she must have, I would argue, alienates her, at least experientially. It doesn't actually alienate her, but in her experience, it alienates her from the one who could actually satisfy her. Hagar pretty straightforwardly shows us the better way. She's not at all perfect herself, but her story reminds us of the simple fact that enduring limitation and powerlessness Like, having to endure limitation and powerlessness does not mean that there's no relief and no recourse at all. Rather, Hagar reminds us that we can withdraw to a deserted place to pray to the one who is not powerless. That's not an insignificant thing. That's how the story of Exodus begins. 
is with some powerless folks praying, crying out to God. Overall, for all the upsetting and troubling stuff in this story, and there's plenty that is troubling in the story, nonetheless, we ought to be able to see that the Lord is acting here entirely from his own volition, entirely out of his own initiative, in order to lift Hagar and her child up, actually. What happens for Hagar is not at all unlike what will eventually happen for the Hebrew children in their bondage in Egypt. What happens for Hagar follows the same pattern that Mary, the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, articulates in the New Testament in the Magnificat when she says, you've cast down the mighty from their thrones and you've lifted up the lowly. God doesn't overpower or punish either Abram or Sarai, and he even instructs Hagar to remain under their power to return to them, and yet God pursues Hagar and listens to her affliction. In all these ways, I think perhaps we can see that the blessing that God promised that we began to listen to God making, like the the promise of blessing that God has been articulating to Abram, that that blessing expands and extends in this story to touch an enslaved woman who finds herself at Abram and Sarai's mercy. And that blessing begins to touch her inside her own lifetime. In Hagar, the strange blessedness that Jesus articulates much, much later in the Beatitudes in the New Testament, in the New Testament, uh, that strange blessedness that Jesus is articulating in the Beatitudes, I think it's already starting to emerge in Hagar. A strange blessedness in words like, blessed are the poor in spirit, who are not people that seem blessed. But Jesus says they are, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, who have something to grieve. Again, not people that seem like we would call them blessed, but Jesus says they are, because he says, they shall be comforted. Or blessed are the meek, which is another word for weak and powerless. For Jesus says, they will inherit the earth. In Hagar, we glimpse blessing of a more subversive kind than we could have seen at the beginning of God promising that blessing to Abram. A blessedness of inexplicable and totally unpredictable reversals of people's fortunes. Amazingly, though Hagar is the least empowered person in the story, though she has the least resources at her disposal, the least means by which to improve her station, she, at this point of the story, is actually the most blessed. Like, the blessing is most realized for her right now. There's already a baby growing in her womb. She has received from God a promise of almost equal measure to the promise given to Abram, and she's already enjoying the concrete fulfillment of that promise in ways that no one else in the story is. But to kind of bring us back to placing these two women side by side again, what really may be most amazing and potentially most instructive to us in this story is that God's expectation of these two women is essentially the same. Implicitly, his expectation of these two women is essentially the same, which is that they ought to embrace rather than to flee from their weakness and their powerlessness. If we could name what it is that Sarai does wrong in the story and what ultimately Hagar does right, it's along the lines of whether or not they embrace or reject their weakness, and their powerlessness. Like I said, I think that this is the, the, the potentially most fruitful place for us to find ourselves addressed and challenged 
by this story is in the question of whether or not we embrace our own weakness or whether or not we see it as something that needs to be overcome and defeated. So here's three really broad uh, ways that I think that we, can, that we can embrace our weakness and our powerlessness rather than, than having a workaround for it. Um, and they sort of rhyme even. So the three things are praying, waiting, and staying. Does that rhyme? Praying, waiting, staying? St staying, maybe. Anyway, so praying. We noted earlier that that's the contrast between, it's one of the things that's different about what they actually do in this story. Whereas Hagar prays, she articulates her affliction to the Lord that Sarai schemes. There's a lady named Hannah, who I think about a lot, in the first chapter of Samuel, of 1 Samuel. And she is one of, I think, two wives of this guy named Elkanah, I think. Yep. And um, the other wife, whose name is Penina or Penina, is very fertile. She has babies. And Hannah does not. She is barren. And these two ladies are pretty mean to each other about that along those lines. Um, Hannah definitely does not have the upper hand in that relationship. She's more loved by her husband, despite the fact that she doesn't have children. But Penina has kids. And so there's a lot of strife and agony in that, in that little family, or maybe that biggish family, that polyamorous family. But anyway, more to the point. What Hannah does is she, she pours out her soul in prayer to the Lord uh, in the temple, to a degree that the priest guy who's working there thinks that she's like wasted and is like just out of control drunk, and he chastises her, and she responds, um, I'm not drunk. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. And this is the beginning of the turning point uh, in Hannah's life. She goes on from there to literally like make a deal with God where she's like, you give me what I want, and I'll give you my son back. Which seems like, I don't know, if in Sunday school, if there was like a rule book you learned for how to pray, probably that, you know, making deals with God <laughs> wouldn't be in it. But what happens in that story is God's like, okay, sure. Um, she doesn't exactly know for sure that, that she's received what she's gotten, but she leaves the temple with a sense of peace, it seems like. And sure enough, she goes and conceives a son. So what I want to point to here is that prayer, you know, it's, uh, it is a place where stuff can change for us. And it doesn't always seem, I'm not saying that every single time that you go and pray, it's going to seem that God has really delivered the goods. But I can tell you that if, we, if the question that we're trying to ask is, am I trying to take matters into my own hands or not? Or instead, am I really trusting all my hopes and dreams to the Lord? And am I really living responsibly to his direction? Really, the first question is, like, are you still praying or not? You know, I think I can honestly say in my life, the times that I have taken things into my own hands have corresponded with a dearth of prayer. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, no, that no praying person ever makes mistakes or never makes mistakes, right? That's not my point. But there's, the thing about prayer is it's a different posture, fundamentally, than a posture of control, you know? It's a posture of intercession and of asking and, of, and of, of admitting that I don't have the ability to steer things the way I need them to go, and so I need God to deliver the goods that I don't have in my own hands. Uh, I was talking to Austin yesterday, 
And he had told me uh, on the last day of retreat that he had been feeling kind of overwhelmed. He's got a lot on his plate right now. I asked his permission to tell the story, by the way. Um, and also, you can feel free to interject if I do a poor job telling it. You know, he, he even said, actually, at one point on Sunday at retreat that maybe the prayer was dry, had been dry recently. The Lectio had not been a place of great abundance for him. Anyway, but then I met with him yesterday, and, and he described the way that, that that morning that he had spent some time in Scripture and in prayer and listening to the Lord, and then in ways that were almost inexplicable, that God had, uh, had relieved him of burdens that he didn't have to carry. And, and what changed was not the amount of plates that he's spinning or the responsibilities he has at his job or the, the major changes that he's making in his life going into this next year, right? The circumstances of the, that were causing everything to be overwhelmed or for you to feel overwhelmed is not what changed. What changed is that I think it would be fair to say that the Lord found you and in some way addressed you and flipped a switch that you weren't capable of flipping yourself. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so prayer is the womb of the new life that God wants to give us. And in many ways, it is the alternative to a posture of control. Praying is one way to embrace our weakness. Waiting is another way to embrace our weakness and, our, uh, and to not try to escape our powerlessness. You know, I mean, if there's one thing that Abram ends up having to do and that his whole family ends up having to do, whether they want to or not, is wait. Um, you know, in verse 3, we read, uh, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, and that's not an unimportant detail. Um, a lot of freaking time had been passing with no visible sign that God was delivering on the stuff that God, I mean, he's continuing to not, not nothing seems to be happening. And it's that delay um, that is in some ways the hardest thing to endure. And that can begin, like the passage of time itself can begin to sort of beg the question of like, oh my gosh, I got to do something. Like surely what it means to be responsible is for me to freaking do something, to make something happen. Not to mention the fact that there is this kind of delay of justice in this story. Sarai doesn't escape out of an unjust situation. In many ways, it would be fair to say that, uh, excuse me, Hagar doesn't escape out of an unjust situation. She's going to remain, for now, under the power of an abusive mistress. And only her son is really going to fully enjoy, I think it's fair to say she will enjoy some of it, actually, inside her lifetime. Later on in her story, we'll read. But her son is going to, is going to have freedom that she lacked. And so again, the whole gist of the story is like, wait. Um, it's, it's a delay. Waiting's hard, uh, in no small part because waiting seems like you're not doing anything. Uh, but in scripture, waiting sounds like an activity, actually. We, we read stuff like, uh, you know, I'll wait on the Lord, and in his word I'll put my hope. More than watchmen wait for the morning, etc. Or in the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk starts off his book with like kind of going on a tirade, sort of putting God to the question about why he's not delivering on any number of promises. But then chapter two, Habakkuk is like, all right, I'm going to wait and see what God says to all that. And uh, in the second verse of chapter two of Habakkuk, we read, the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So the Lord's answer to Habakkuk is essentially what I told you. The promise that you're losing hope on is still the thing. I mean, 
Part of the reason that God keeps on repeating the promise in the story of Genesis is because we keep needing to hear it. But, you know, the, the sort of flip side of that is it's like there's no new information. Despite the passage of time, the plan hasn't changed. And, and so to an extent, what happens is God comes in and says, yes, that thing you already know, the path I already set your feet upon, keep on. Keep on keeping on. Still there is a vision. It's interesting the dimension of time in, in the Lord's reply to Habakkuk. What's needed in the midst to endure time is for the vision to be plain and memorable and visible so that you don't forget it. It waits to its appointed time, so there is like a time at which it's going to be fulfilled, and yet we don't have a way to penetrate to know when that time is going to be. In some ways, it's fast, though. He said in, in, in one moment, it waits to its appointed time, but then it says that right after that, it hastens toward the end. It will not lie. And then God admits that it probably seems slow to you. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. I mean, there's a lot of paradox. Um, but what's clear is that God is making it possible for Habakkuk to wait. It's a thing um, that is, in fact, what the Lord instructs us to do a lot of the time. Relatedly, uh, staying. I think at times, even if we don't come up with an elaborate scheme, the basic form, the basic temptation for us is to get the crap out of Dodge. If we're in a place that is making us feel powerless and weak and we don't know what's going to happen and uncertainty is mounting and it's been like that a while, the basic temptation is the bail. We can almost unendingly believe that, that, that just getting out of here and over to there is going to fix something. I'm not saying there's never a time to leave a place. I think that certainly there are. But a lot of times... Um, our idea that a departure is going to fix something is, is a delusion, actually. There will be a time for Hagar to leave, actually. She is eventually not going to be under uh, Sarai's hand anymore. But that time is going to be a good bit later than this, this particular moment in her life. So I say all that to say that we just need to be aware of the temptation to leave when maybe God hasn't told us to leave. If the thing that we are thinking about leaving is the thing that God got us into in the first place, then we just need to, before we leave, we really we need to ask ourselves honestly and probably get some input from other people about whether or not we've received a change of instructions or not. I mean, I can remember, I can, I can talk about this now because it's been several years, but I can remember like two years into being at the Wesley uh, or maybe like a year and a half into the Wesley and being like wanting to leave because I was poor, and uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about a variety of things, and I wasn't so sure that it was ever going to get better. And I can remember saying to someone who was a kind of mentor to me, like, yeah, I don't, I don't really know, you know, and him just kind of looking at me like, okay, uh, how long have you been there? Uh, and then sort of being like, so does it seem to you like God's, God's told you to leave? And I was like, uh, I don't think so. So there may be really big incentives and reasonable reasons that you might want to leave. But if it's a thing that God got you into in the first place, then you need to ask whether or not he's changed those instructions or not. I was joking with a friend of mine this afternoon, or he was kind of joking with me. We're talking on the phone uh, about how annoying it is to still be, you know, he's like almost 50 and I'm almost 40, and to still be like very weak in ways that are visible to ourselves and to other people. And uh, he was saying, like, you know what I wish would have happened 
when I like emerged from the baptismal waters is like that I would like come out of the uh, up from the water like totally shredded, like just ripped with like the Iron Man suit on, uh, and just able to like be a badass, you know, like to be like a he- the hero of my own life to get stuff done you know, to make a plan and accomplish it in ways that were, you know, sort of going from strength to strength. Or, you know, if not, if not Iron Man, maybe like, uh, you know, not in a suit, but like naked, but ripped like Thor with like a magic hammer, you know. And uh, basically being a god that doesn't need Jesus. Um, it can feel like when you're going through something that makes you experience your weakness or your powerlessness, you know, if you're willing to admit at all that that's what's happening, you might make the mistake of thinking that like, it's a, like a, a cute little detour that God has taken you on to be like, you know, to teach you something important, but pretty soon he's going to let you get back to being strong. Uh, but um, in reality, God doesn't actually promise to make us strong in ways that we don't need him anymore. That's not, that's not part of the promise of, of baptism. He does make us a new creation. Our old life is gone. Our new life has come. He transforms us, but that doesn't mean that he gets us to a place that we've eradicated our weakness. He doesn't make us strong in a way that we don't need him anymore. What I'm learning is that the deeper you get into this Christian discipleship thing, the deeper you go into this Christian discipleship thing, kind of the weaker you go into it. And in some ways, in fact, it's grace, as much as I wish that I could be you know, shredded like Thor spiritually or whatever, is, uh, on the other hand, it's, it's actually a grace not to be able to get away from your weakness. Um, because if you have access to more powerful methods, if you have resources that you can exert your will upon, man-made tools that will let you calibrate your goals and then set things in motion to accomplish them, to help you kind of work around or, or delude yourself into thinking you're working around your weakness, then it is immensely tempting to use those resources. But the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, among others in the scriptures, he points out that if you take the weakness out of the gospel, it's not really the gospel anymore. If you take the weakness out of the gospel, it's not really the gospel anymore. He says that God deliberately picks the ragamuffins and the losers and the unpopular, awkward people for his team. By the way, he's, that's, he's describing the people he's writing the letter to when he says that. He's like, y'all are a bunch of freaking losers. Like, don't get prideful because you suck, right? No one liked you before you were a Christian, which is probably why you became a Christian in the first place. So don't get all prideful now. He says weakness is God's strategy, actually, to save the world. So here's what I'm talking about. This is the beginning of the first letter of the Corinthians. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God, that is a phrase in the Bible, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jesus on the cross makes it so that Paul's allowed to say those words, the weakness of God. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I just want to confess briefly to y'all that I don't think in my life I've ever felt more powerless as a pastor and a preacher and a leader than I do right now, actually. Uh, which is saying something, because I felt pretty powerless sometimes, okay? But never in my life have I felt more powerless as a pastor and a preacher and a leader 
than I do right now. The combination of having one person on staff instead of you know, six or nine people on staff, you know, two people including uh, Camellia, right? But one intern compared to like just a pile, like a, a litter of interns with, with the weird stuff of the weird change, the way the world is different after COVID and not being able to know or parse out like, is, is everybody just weird now? Or like, is, are we doing something wrong? Or what, what is the deal? I've never in my life wished more than I do right now. And I've wished this a million times, but that I could just speak and teach in a way that was so freaking ripped and charismatic that just, dang, you know, we'd have to build a freaking stadium to fit the people in here. <laughs> like, I wish I could make it happen more than I ever have before. I used to think that if I could do a good enough job of preaching and teaching and discipling, that I could make something happen. And increasingly, <laughs> um, I'm just like, I don't know, actually. I don't, even if I, if I could go to bed at night and know that I was doing the best that I possibly could, I don't, I'm not sure if it would matter. So I've never felt more powerless as a pastor and a preacher than I do right now. But Paul, by contrast, is not bothered by the powerlessness of his words. You know, and arguably he, you know, did a couple of important things. Um, he, he's not bothered. He's not trying to be a cool megachurch pastor. Um, instead, for Paul, like, weakness is almost like a strategy for him. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. How uncharismatic is that? How unattractive and non-crowd drawing is that? I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and a power so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, you know, if I could get what I wanted, what I might be sacrificing is the power of God. As much as Sarah or Sarai is, is not a person to be, like, imitated in this passage, she's actually the person we, if we're honest, we could probably most identify with here. We ought to be able to recognize and sympathize we should to recognize ourselves with Sarai's attempt to overcome her powerlessness, her attempt to deploy the resources that lie within reach to make something happen. And so to move to a close here, where in your life have you felt barren? Where in our missionary struggle as a community do you feel barren? Where have you yearned to be part of God midwifing something good and beautiful and living into the world, but found yourself powerless to make it happen Sarai's desire to overcome her barrenness, it's entirely relatable. It's entirely understandable. The thing is, though, that Sarai's barrenness doesn't need to be overcome, at least not by her. It doesn't need to be overcome. It's not a problem in the way that she thinks it is. If God had wanted an extremely fertile lady to do Sarai's job, he would have chosen an extremely fertile lady to do Sarai's job. Instead, Sarai's barrenness is exactly why God chose her, to become the mother of the promised people. Instead of trying to escape her weakness, Sarai ought to have leaned into it. Because her weakness is the site where in the end she's going to see God's power revealed.